Welcome to GP's Pangeo Perspectives, your guide to global growth, where we explore opportunities and ideas that come with global team building, business expansion, and compliance for companies everywhere. Hello, everyone. Pangeo is an idea inspired by the 300 million year old supercontinent, Pangea, when the Earth's landmasses were united as one. Today, the world is reuniting once again as businesses everywhere seek opportunities beyond borders and boundaries. So let's explore the future of business with voices from around the world. As we look for success, we all can share. Welcome to GP's Pangeo Perspectives, your guide to global growth. International expansion comes with a plethora of unknowns, and no amount of internet research is going to prepare you for what you're going to experience on the ground in a new region. In today's episode, we're joined by Allison Stewart Allen to explore why simply grafting existing processes and policies onto a new location could very well leave key parts of your business lost in translation. Allison is the CEO of International Marketing Partners. She's a renowned educator, broadcaster, advisor, and author of the best-selling book, Working with Americans, the first business manual exclusively dedicated to understanding U.S. business culture. Allison, welcome. Super excited to have you on the show today. So, Allison, could you tell us about your global life journey and a bit of what it's been like getting lost and then found in translation? Absolutely. Thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to join you. I was raised in Munich, Germany for four years as a kid. Originally, I'm from Los Angeles. But between the ages of eight and 12, we were moved to Munich. My dad got a job transfer with the company he was working for at that time. I had never spoken a foreign language before, was thrown into a German school, and had to learn the language and the culture really quickly. So I did that, moved back to L.A. when I was 12 and had forgotten a lot of English because I was speaking German within a few months, and then had to have tutors to retrain me in English. Completed my junior high and high school education back in LA, and my schools there had a requirement for a language, and they offered French or Spanish. And I decided, actually, I just really like the sound of French. Yeah, yeah. It started at a young age for myself. I think I told you when we had the intro call, I was an odd kid. I would book myself on flights at the age of nine to London, Paris, Rio, Tokyo, and they would call the house and confirm my flight. And my mother would say, no, he's not going to Paris on Friday. He's nine. And so I think this sort of adventure travel bug was in my DNA from the get-go, persuaded my parents to let me go to school in Switzerland when I was 15. And then it just snowballs from there. I think they regret having let me go because I never went back pretty much either. And it's been over 35 years. When I left grad school with my MBA under Peter Drucker to take my first real job, which was with Pricewaterhouse as a strategy consultant, I was really excited about the idea of working for this global company and being able to be transferred abroad. Anyway, when they said, when you're here for 10 years, we put you on the long list of people interested in an international assignment. And when you're in your 20s, 10 years is forever. So I decided, okay, yeah, I'm going to do my own marketing campaign. 
and try to get a job under my own steam in Europe. So that's really what I did. Toured Europe, basically crammed a gap year into three months and left with two offers, one in Paris with CBS Records in an artist and repertoire job in the marketing team. Very cool. Yeah, it would have been very cool. And the other was yeah, an offer here been. in London. <laughs> so yeah, I took the yeah. London offer, got the work permit, moved to London in February 1988. And basically, I'm now in my 35th year here. I remember looking for work in Europe and in Asia and getting that pushback initially. But you just have to be tenacious and you get your foot in one door and then the rest just starts to happen. And I always think that working and living and studying abroad is university without walls. You learn so much about yourself and others and your own country. And in turn, so much about your country. So that's a, a great sort of segue into discussing your book and working with Americans. You've said at its heart, the national religion of America is Darwinism. Could you explain that metaphor for our audience, Allison, and what makes it such an American point of view and how it connects to business? Sure. Thank you. I think if you think about the origins or one of the key tenets of our business culture, which is that we celebrate anything that's new and improved, that really comes from the early, early settlement of the country. If you think about the people, the entrepreneurs, although they would never think of themselves in that light. Most of the people that decided to come to the United States were British, mostly English, some Dutch, and others that wanted freedom of expression, freedom of religion. Certainly here in the United Kingdom, things in the 1600s, 1500s even weren't so great. So if given the chance and having your passage paid for on the boat to end up in Jamestown or Plymouth, Massachusetts or other early settlements, then you had nothing to lose. So those people that decided to sail obviously were risk-taking and obviously also were seeking something new, were seeking a new life. Over the course of the waves of immigrations that define our history, new and better started to become synonymous. And that is alive in the business culture. The business culture, you could say, is a subset of the national culture. And if the national culture, and therefore the business culture, values anything new and sees anything new as better than the old, then that then makes sense in terms of why we're Darwinian. We would truly believe that if you're not evolving, if you're not doing something new and improving then you are at risk of becoming a dinosaur. And if you become a dinosaur, you're probably not going to be around too long. You have to constantly be reinventing. Absolutely. And think about it. A lot of the people that in the subsequent waves of immigrants that came to the U.S. and even still are reinventing themselves, they come to start over very often. So that reinvention and mutation, if you like, to become somebody else and someone different, we still really value that. Yeah. And a lot of the people who immigrate to the United States put down their cultural ways and customs to adapt and become American, much more so than you see the other way around with people going and immigrating to other countries. Yeah, very interesting. So if that's the American or, or even Western point of view, how does that come off to other cultures in the Eastern part of the world and Africa and in Latin America? To give us a little tour of those perspectives of how did they take that kind of Darwinism 
thinking? I think they don't necessarily share that history. And so the kind of push that we Americans exert on others around the world to improve and mutate and come up with the next gen idea and innovate, that's not necessarily an urgency for other parts of the world that it is in the United States. I mean, the other thing about that whole phenomenon is that we're in a hurry in the U.S., which kind of goes hand in hand with that change or die. There's an urgency around change or die, and we expect others in different parts of the world to also be at the same pace as us. So not only are we expecting them to innovate and change, but we also expect them to do it yesterday. And I think it would be great if maybe more Americans knew more about the rest of the world and were able to travel more, work in another country more, to appreciate that the world isn't like us. And to my mind, that's good. Because if we were all the same, it would be a very boring way to live. It would. Absolutely. And I've experienced that just living in different countries, the way you work and the way you interact, particularly living in France, if you ate your sandwich at your desk during lunch, that wouldn't be looked at as, wow, he's hardworking. That'd be like, this guy is weird. You'd become a pariah and everybody would like, what is he doing? And you go off in droves to have coffee. You would never drink coffee by yourself. It's a communal thing. It's where you discuss where business happens. And so the approach to work, how you work, meals, coffee, vastly different and can actually impede how you do business if you're not clued into those things from the get-go. So even in Germany, even now, if you're having to work like a 50-hour week, the suggestion isn't, oh, good for you. You obviously are working really hard, to your point. In fact, right. what it conveys is that you're deeply inefficient and potentially incompetent <laughs> because you exactly. can't get the work done in the regular work week. Right. Yeah. And even we talk about vacation time. After living a decade in Japan where it was a week a year, when I arrived in France, my boss said, hey, Tommy, you haven't put in for your four weeks. For summer, I giggled and I said, I'm not going to take four weeks. And he said, why? And I said, but we badly viewed if I take four weeks. And he says, it's badly viewed if you don't. You need that vacation put in for your four weeks. Yeah, it just a, a completely different outlook on work and how you approach it. Okay, very interesting stuff. So when companies are going global, what are the main factors to consider in bridging some of these gaps? How can companies match their vision and product offering to the countries they're expanding into? There's a few really basic things that they need to do. The very first thing is they need to do their homework. They need to go to this target country or region and immerse themselves in it and understand the culture intimately. It means spending time there. There really aren't any shortcuts. You can read books. You can watch movies. It is not the same as going there. You have to know what it smells like. You have to observe people, what they eat, how they dress, all the stuff that's immediately obvious. That's the quick stuff you grasp. The harder stuff you grasp, which requires more time, is what I call the things below the waterline. It's all the things that are there that are maybe not immediately visible. Attitudes, the role of gender, the role of religion, 
the legislative framework, all these socioeconomic factors, demography that play into how your market is shaped and structured in that particular country. And while you may want to hire a market research firm and have a third party do that, and often I am brought in to companies to do that, I also do it alongside the company leaders, especially it's usually a marketing leader, because if they don't understand the place and the culture, then it's very likely they're going to make bad decisions around which value propositions travel well and which won't. So you start with the research. The second thing that's really important is you have to allocate the resources internally. And we're not talking about cash. We're talking also about time. We're talking about management attention. We're talking about making international a core part of the agenda and having dedicated people who focus on this. There have been cases when in some client settings where they haven't dedicated those resources and international, quote unquote, was an agenda item that was covered once a week on the weekly executive committee meeting. And it maybe got, I don't know, 20 minutes of airtime on the agenda. Well, if that's the case, don't waste your money. Don't bother with international. You should do it if it's a part of your business strategy to expand, not if it's an accident or it's a hobby. It needs to be done professionally. So I think that's the second thing. And I think the third thing is that you have a corporate culture that is open and willing to change in the light of these different parts of the world and the fact that they aren't like home. Some leaders, unfortunately, do not have global mindsets and will insist on making the rest of the world like their home market. I'm, I, free, I hate to break it to them, but that's not going to really work. They have to be flexible. They have to innovate. They have to accept mistakes because international expansions really are, in part, experiments. And they won't always go perfectly. There will be mess-ups, but that comes with the territory. So I think those would be the three top things I would suggest for any organization or leader driving an international expansion. And in summary of all that, it's really giving the time and the attention that you would to your own market, to your home market, to international, and not having it, like you said, just 20 minutes or 15 minutes in an ELT meeting. So Allison, you've been based in the UK now for 35 years. The UK and the United States are an interesting case study, right? Because both countries share many commonalities. They speak almost the same language. So I'm curious to hear of any personal anecdotes you may have of an instance where a business exchange between an American and someone from the UK may have gotten lost in translation, even though we share all these cultural (laughs) and linguistic common threads. Sure. I think first thing to say is that American English has evolved to be highly functional to be able to instruct or communicate with people who are still learning English. And this is a function of our immigration history. My own family came to the U.S. in the early 1900s. They didn't speak English, but you have to have a tool that helps them succeed in the jobs that they take, succeed in this new life in the United States. So American English has become a very functional, low-context device. 
And it's really a reflection of the diversity of the people that have, over the decades, arrived into the country. The UK version of English is much more high context, which basically means that there's meaning in what is not said. There's also multiple layers of meaning in what is said. And you can really do that because it's more homogeneous. The UK values, the language has stayed more or less the same for hundreds of years. American English, that's not the case. Why that's important is because when you get an American and a British team together, it's very likely there will be huge misunderstandings. I'll give you one example. So I had an American client team come over a few years ago for a trade show, and I was advising them on their expansion into Europe. And typically, companies start with the UK, American companies anyway, start with the UK because of that language similarity, and then move on to continental Europe. I introduced them to a potential business partner, and this business partner, British business partner, London-based, said, you may wish to consider trying X, Y, and Z, and I look forward to you updating me in the next couple of weeks on how that's gone. So my American clients after the meeting said, oh, this person was really nice, interesting to hear their suggestion, that'll go into the mix. And I thought, no, that was actually command. You may wish to consider is actually British for you need to do this. And you need to call me in two weeks and tell me how it went. So the subtlety is something that is hard to listen for if you're not from the culture and not used to that multi-level meaning. Okay, so Alison, let's follow up with a simple lost in translation question, which I think might help us look at a complex issue, very simple. I'd like to talk about how people in different cultures and countries express the words yes and no. For instance, when you are trying to make agreements globally and you think you have a yes or a no from someone, but sometimes you may not all understand all the cultural nuances behind that yes or no, it could be a huge issue, right? Absolutely. And <laughs> you'll know, having lived in Japan, that saying things like, oh, that is one possibility is a polite way of saying no without overtly saying no. Because saying no culturally is seen as a negative. It's seen as discouraging. It's seen as just unacceptable. We direct Americans can say, oh, sure, yeah. Absolutely fantastic, great, which means all of those things, literally means all of those things. It's funny, living here in the UK, which is fairly understated in terms of language, and the US will say to an idea, if we like it, oh, wow, God, that's really, that's interesting. And if you say that here in a different intonation, which is mm, interesting, that means it's not at all interesting. It's a no without saying <laughs> yeah. no. Interesting is the polite way to say no. I think learning these nuances, often also in parts of Asia, besides Japan, people will say yes because they don't want to offend you, but it's not a commitment. It really isn't a yes. It's a maybe, and more likely it's a no. You have to read the context to understand that. And that's one thing that's very hard. If you come from a low-context business culture like we do in the U.S., and you encounter business cultures that are high-context, learning how to 
read those signals and understand the meaning around the word takes a lot of practice. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And in Japan, I referenced this to you before, to say we can't do it or we don't have that, the kind of really means no. It's just a softener because you want to avoid saying no at all costs. Having lived out for 10 years and then moving to France, where I call it the seven no syndrome, the knee-jerk reaction is, ah, no, 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 no. C'est impossible. You're like, oh my God, he or she said no seven times. That's got to be no. But in fact, it's not. It's really an invitation to engage and to hash it out. And nine times out of 10, it is possible, but you need to put on your boxing gloves and have it out with the person in front of you. But it's a way of connecting in French. So very different ways of reading yes and no. Yeah, it's interesting stuff. You have to get those cultural nuances to know where you really stand. Okay, one of the challenges companies often face is the binary outlook of staying local or going global. They can either scale at speed by going global or choose to play it safe by remaining local. How can companies overcome this global-local dilemma? And can you shine some light on this for us? Sure. So I think one of the things that happens is it's a five-year spasm, if that's a way to describe it. It takes five years to get consistency across your international markets. And then when you get that consistency, your local markets, they might be subsidiaries, they might be retail stores, but they then push back and say, this generic global stuff doesn't work for us. It's not as relevant. It doesn't resonate. The challenge then is, as you say, how do we do both? One of the ways you do both is you manage it in real time. You don't treat it as a problem. Okay, now we're global and the local markets are really upset. We're going to have to go back to local again and devolve power and decision-making. We better just let them know they have a new mandate, etc. And there you go. Problem solved. It isn't really problem solved because you still have to be doing quite a lot of global stuff while people in your local markets are making the decisions about what's most relevant. So the trick of this is to define what decisions stay at headquarters or global and what decisions will regularly be let out to local. And if that isn't working, we iterate. We look at it again. We rebalance it until we get the local resonance and relevance and we get the economies of scale and scope by looking at the way we run global. It might be procurement stays at global level because you get great discounts. You may decide at global level to have one marketing, advertising, comms agency that serves your global markets because that's efficient. However, locally, that provider, that agency has offices in the local markets and can do local executions. So the best thing to do is to list What's good about global? What's good about local? And then the disadvantages. What are a few disadvantages of global, the disadvantages of local? And then you really force the conversation about how do we get the best of both? What mechanisms, processes, decision-making, corporate culture could we create that gets the best of global and local? Let's try some of these things and let's see how they work. And let's keep changing them regularly, revisiting it every couple of weeks, 
every month and fine-tuning until we get the tension right. Think of it as like an elastic band. We need to be stretchy. Sometimes we need the band to contract. Sometimes we need the band to be stretched. But there isn't one single rule. That's why it's complicated. It's complex. It isn't, here's a template, do these five things, you'll have it cracked. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't fit into a template. Yeah, the old cliche of think globally, act locally, it's really you need to tweak, you need to adapt while trying to stay true to what you're trying to do globally. Yeah, great stuff. So let's go on to our final question. It makes me excited because I'm loving the conversation. Me too. Yeah, it's incredibly engaging and important stuff. Companies can adopt different strategies for achieving global growth. What are some of the different routes to growth? And how do you think these routes impact how companies manage risk and reward to translate their businesses successfully as they go global? Yeah. The most direct route where you have the most control is you set up your own operation in the target international market. You hire local staff, you send a few of your own over there, and you build organically from the ground up. The benefits of that, as I mentioned, is control. This is your operation, you're in charge, and you own the people. The downside is it's slow. And if you want to go up a growth curve quickly, that's not necessarily going to get you there. Another route is to partner through a joint venture, through a strategic alliance, through a consortium. A lot of good benefits there. You learn from the partner. The partner learns from you. You accelerate the growth rate because they have local market knowledge. They might even have a product or service portfolio that complements your own. So there's a lot of benefits there. The downside, again, is control. It's potentially also more a different type of cost. It's also a risk around your intellectual property, not being ring-fenced and kept separate from the partner or partners. Another route is you buy a company in that target market. You make an acquisition, and that's also very good. The downside, of course, is it could be very expensive, number one. Number two, the staff may not be loyal to you as the new owner. Number three, they may not have a corporate culture in those operations in the countries where they are that's very compatible with your own corporate culture. And we know from tons of research, almost three quarters of all acquisitions, mergers and acquisitions fail because of culture, because of that qualitative thing, not because of other reasons. Along that continuum, I think what you need to think about is the cost, cash costs, the management and leadership time required, the relevance of your portfolio and value propositions in those target markets, either organically or through a partner, the time it's going to take. So there's a lot of risk factors that need to be spelled out and articulated so that the decision is a conscious one, that the due diligence has been done in looking at the risk profile of all of these options before you choose the right one that's best for you. Yeah, I mean, you really have to be very, very rigorous in looking at all the risk. Plenty of rewards to be had, but you have to take the necessary steps in advance. 
Listen, Allison, it has been wonderful talking to you. I've enjoyed the deep dive into culture and business, and we feel very lucky to have had you as our global guide to navigating the struggles of international expansion, because as we've seen, it's not something you can just take from your country and culture and graft it into another. And perhaps it's not talked about enough, and it needs discussion. Thank you so much, Allison, for your time and for sharing your incredible knowledge and expertise. Allison has let us know that she has a course on LinkedIn Learning called Leading International Growth, where you can go and listen to her there. She's also extending a special rate on her book, Working with Americans, 20% discount for anyone from our podcast, from GP, subscriber. Please go and look at the podcast notes and you'll find a link there with the code to get that 20% discount on her book. Allison, again, we thank you so much for your time and being with us today. And thank you to our listeners. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as we did. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please leave a review to help us reach new listeners. And of course, do follow us and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you prefer to watch, please visit us at g-p.com slash podcast. Bye for now, everyone. Thank you.